Okay, what's up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia here with Schwan Humes, and we are here for what will be known as episode 143. I want to go ahead and say it. We've been doing the show for a couple years now, 143 episodes in, and last week is the first time we taped a full show, and I don't know what the fuck I did, but for some reason, that recording didn't take, and we lost the whole episode. So I don't care what anybody says. That was episode 142. This is episode 143. And Schwann's making a whole bunch of noise. I have no idea what he's doing. I'm making noise. I was just sitting still. You good there? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, you got me? Yeah, your, your audio is a little messed up, though. All right. There you go. Now you're fine. Turn your volume down a little bit for me, though. Turn down? All right. Gotcha. Yeah, you're like right up on the uh, mic. But yes, we are here for episode 143. But me, Schwan, we are here to talk some MMA. We don't have a whole lot to talk about. Or we we, we kind of do. It's a slow week because we don't have any fights until December uh, 7th, I think. Yes, we don't have any UFC fights to December 7th. So you have two weekends, people, two weekends off to enjoy uh, something else. There's still some Bellator action going on this weekend. We'll talk about that for a little bit but yeah man how are you what, what are you going to do with your vacation from uh ufc uh same thing i've been doing really i've been i just been training a lot of kids man like just a lot of kids varsity high school elementary middle school and i do freelance so it's like people call me then it's like you got to go you don't i don't have a gym i'm not part of a program so it's kind of like people call and it's all right ready to go can you meet me here right ready to go can you meet me there so I'm just going to keep doing that, basically. Keep on working. True, true. So um, that's really what we're all going to do. I'm going to be covering some professional wrestling. It's actually a very busy weekend this week, but we'll, I'll probably be talking about that on the other podcast this Sunday, um, the Let's Talk Wrestling Show podcast. But let's jump into what we have to talk to talk about this week here in MMA. We're going to cover or do some quick recaps of UFC Sao Paulo. We're going to talk about Luke Rockhold. Um, we're going to talk about Bellator London. And I want to talk about the Gordon Ryan and Bo Nickel grappling match, which kind of which was released this past week. We don't talk a whole lot of professional grappling here on this show, but I think this is a kind of an interesting matchup that I think is, is worth a uh, conversation in a slow news week this week. So let's go ahead and start with uh, UFC Sao Paulo. And here we saw Jan Blakowicz, uh defeat Jacare Sosa. And he did so in a way that wasn't exciting. It wasn't like the same way of him knocking Luke Rockhold out cold. And I think that that's more about, that's more on Sosa's side, just because his style doesn't necessarily lend to lend for him to put himself in a whole lot of, of trouble. But what we saw on Saturday gives room for the conversation of whether or not the UFC will be willing to put Blackowitz in a main event title picture against um, against John Jones. In my opinion, even with that win, it's hard to see him leapfrogging either Dominic Reyes or uh, even Corey Anderson. Maybe he's pit, pitted against Corey Anderson um, in the near future, and they and they battle it out for a number one contender slot. But there's no way he's jumping over those two men. Uh, Shawan, what did you think about that main event on Saturday and what we saw? Well, I I feel kind of basically I feel like Jan pretty much gave away a a chance to really 
put his stamp on himself and and, and stamp himself as the next contender. Even though Luke Rockhold and Josh Gray haven't been really dominant or winners, the fact of the matter is both guys are names. And, and Luke Rockhold, you're a former champion. Um, Jock Ray was a contender, a longtime contender, still a highly ranked middleweight, a, contend, a champion in other organizations. Beating And the, you, you know how the UFC likes to imitate boxing where they have you beat the former faded champion and use that to springboard you into a title shot. Had he finished Jock Ray in a spectacular fashion or really put a one-sided beating on him, he'd have the leverage because those wins carry more weight than anything as far as name value they have more weight than what Corey anderson's done and as far as name value has more more weight than beating chris a faded chris whiteman but he he basically let he dropped the ball on it um jock ray is pretty much what i thought he was he doesn't have the finer set of skills to consistently attack effectively or defend himself effectively now that he his athleticism has slipped now that he's not the athlete he used to be all he has to lean on is power and durability. And essentially, that's the difference between him and Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold is a notoriously fragile fighter. He gets hurt easily. He recovers poorly. And he's been he's able to mask that with athleticism. Jacare, on the other hand, is very durable, can take punishment, and can recover well. But he enhanced that with his athleticism. The athleticism is no longer there. So he can't make up the gaps in skill anymore. He can't just explode into spots. He can't turn the fight around with one big shot. He can't force a takedown. And as you see him age, you see him lose a step, you're starting to see the lack, the lack of connective skills in his overall fight game. So that's essentially what costs Jock Ray. He doesn't have the skills necessary to navigate a loss in athleticism. He loses 10% of his athleticism. He's no longer the dirty he used to be. And, and Jan, he had a chance to put a stamp on it. And basically, this kind of exposed him. People were starting to think that he's a power puncher, that he's a finisher. And now you're getting to see that against somebody with seasoning and skill and durability, he's really not too much far off from being a slightly above average light heavyweight. You know, a, a, a elite light heavyweight puts a beating on Jacare. An elite heavyweight may finish him. They don't go life and death and barely eke out a win in a slow pace, pretty much ugly fight. And, and that's what he did. He didn't take advantage of the situation. He got the win, but this win isn't going to help him towards getting a title fight. But pretty much just keep him in a holding pattern where he was before. Now, is that more of a indictment of Jacare, or is that more about Blackowitz here? Was the was the win more um, was getting the win more valuable than going out there and putting it all on the line? Because like when he fought Rocco, you know, Luke was aggressive getting out there trying to get into exchanges with him and got himself clipped and, and put out the pasture. Jacare isn't that type of fighter. So is this more about what Sosa was not willing to do or is it still on on Blackowitz? Well, Blachowicz, that's it, how you say his name. It, it's, on, it's kind of on both of them. Jacare is not a wide open fighter. He's not a dynamic finishing, punishing fighter. He 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 fights with some controlled aggression, so as not expose himself to a certain amount of of, of punishment or counters, and, and that does make the fight different. But the the onus is on the bigger man who's got the highlight reel win, who's being talked about as a contender. Now, as far as fight metrics go, and and watching film, I can understand why the fight is difficult. I understand why it's tough. I understand Jacare doesn't make it easy. But I'm not the guy who's trying to get a title fight. I'm not the guy who's trying to move up the ranks and get to, to the highest point I can with the least amount of resistance. He is. The UFC served him up a softball, and he didn't knock it out of the park. 
I'm not saying that Jacare is not durable. I'm not saying he's not skilled. I'm not saying he's not still a dangerous fighter. But they gave him that guy in the hopes that he would put a spectacular win together and make the most of the opportunity and announce himself as a potential title challenger. He wasn't able to do that because he himself is not a dynamic striker. He himself is not a dynamic finisher. And he himself is not willing to take the necessary risk to close out the fight himself. Now, Jacare, of course, isn't going to. And John, John didn't either. He didn't push it. He did not push it. And while I, and like I said, a win is a win. A win's better than a loss. I know everybody likes to say, well, no, there's no losers. No, there is always a loser. Whether it's an exciting loss or, or a back-and-forth fight-of-the-year loss, there's always a loser. Somebody always takes a hit in their stock when they lose, regardless of what they try to convince you of. But the fact of the matter is, this, wasn't, this isn't the kind of win that's going to get Dana White's attention. This isn't the kind of win that's going to get the fans' attention. This isn't the kind of win that's going to get John Jones' attention. What did John Jones say? He was bored. He didn't feel anybody could challenge him. Do you think a fight like this is going to make him feel like he's got a real threat to his title? I don't think so. And um, like I said, it's partly because Jacare is just so durable in his experience. He knows how to navigate rough spots. But when you're a young guy trying to come up and and establish yourself as a championship material, you have to find ways through those spots. Whether it's technical or just pushing a pace. Jacare can't fight at pace anymore. He never really could, but he definitely can't now. Why Why didn't he take chances? As a bigger, stronger man... Why didn't he take chances and really try to press Jacare? You can tell me that's going to give Jacare the best chance of winning, but would in eking out a decision, what did that do for him? It didn't do much, and in many ways, it makes me wonder what's next for Blachowicz, uh, Blachowicz. That's how we're going to say his name. I, I want us to begin in 2020. We're going to begin pronouncing everyone's name right. Blachowicz, Jan Blachowicz is how you say his name. So what would you do next with him? I mean, I, like I said, you can't put him in a title picture. Do you put him up against a Corey Anderson next? Do you put him up against a Johnny Walker, maybe a Tyson Pedro or something like that? What do you do next with him? Uh, that's essentially what you do. I mean, you, you put him in with some other guy who's going to either justify his ranking or who's going to build his name off of off of him. That, that's all you can do at this stage. He... Like I said, he wasn't he wasn't dynamic in what he did. He wasn't particularly active or dominant. So now you've got to put him in with somebody else where he can show there's a separation between him and the rest of the light heavyweights. Right now, if you think about any light heavyweight, I can think of two or three light heavyweights who could have put on a better performance against Jacare. So now he's basically in the middle of the pack again. If he wants to separate himself from the pack, he's got to take a fight with a ranked guy who's got some kind of burn on him and beat that guy so he can take the next step forward. Maybe seeing if Anthony Smith is available. Maybe, uh, what's the other guy's name? Um, not Reyes. Um, I can't think right now. If I'm Corey Anderson, I, I don't fight this guy. If I'm anybody who's really within a stone's throw of the title, I don't fight this guy. I'd say maybe Alex Gustafson or Anthony Smith, he's got to call one of those guys out. He beats a winner with one of these guys. That puts him right back in the talk of a title as a title challenger, but you haven't fight the 13th, 14th, 15th ranked light heavyweight. That doesn't prove anything. And there's not, he doesn't have a lot of options right now. As far as him and his team go, he needs to fight the guy who's equally ranked or higher and he needs to beat them. Anything else is just, it's just a, having him sit in a holding pattern. And what, based on what he showed against Jacare in the light heavyweight division in, in general, everybody's very beatable. So you don't have chances. You don't have time to just sit around and, and hold and wait, wait for the pieces to fall fall into place. You have to take measures to separate yourself. So I'm saying he should probably call it Alexander Gustafsson 
or say he wants to fight Anthony Smith and try to do something that's going to put him on another tier from the rest of the guys. Because right now he's behind Walker and he's behind Anderson by a lot, in my opinion. True. Good ideas there. Good thoughts there, man. Uh, let's talk about the um, – let's look at the rest of the card here because we had in the co-main event, we had – Paul was it Paul Craig and Shogun that ended up in a um, in a draw. So what are your thoughts about this fight here? First, who won the battle? Um, I, I'd probably say I thought Shogun did enough to eke it out. I think he he was landing a little bit of better shots. I think Craig kind of got the fight he wanted, and Shogun, at no point, I felt, was overwhelmed in getting involved in extensive grappling exchanges or wrestling exchanges. I felt that's the fight that Craig, if Craig would have gotten the fight he wanted, I think that's the fight he wanted, and he wasn't able to dominate in it. So I, I feel, going by that metric, that Shogun won the fight. He was able to fight a fight that did, shouldn't have fell in his favor. And it, and except for early on when he was kind of getting punished a little bit, I don't really feel that Craig was doing a huge amount of damage or just outclassing him on the feet. You know, so um, it's once again, it's, it's it's a coin flip kind of toss, toss up kind of how, how you, w- what you emphasize and what you think is more valuable. But I don't think Greg did enough to really separate himself. When you're a fighter and you get the fight you want, and you don't clearly win that fight, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to say that you won it. Even if you did, to me, it's really hard to say that because it's like if Ben Askren takes you down, you're a striker, and he's wrestling you, and you're out wrestling him, or you're even going even money with him. It's hard for me to take it. It's hard for me to see the fight in a real, a truly objective manner because this is where he's supposed to dominate. And he's not dominating. And obviously, he's not dominating the striking range. So if I'm going by the success two people have in their strongest ranges, and the other person's not having any continued success in their strongest range, and they're, at best, maybe close to even with you in your range, I have to, I have to fall on, on the side of that person. That's what I did with a Shogun. I don't think Craig did enough damage. I don't think he was fighting at a high enough pace as far as striking. And uh, for as old as Shogun is, and as much as he's known as a kind of explosive kind of fighter, he was able to really hold his own. Craig wasn't really dominating position. Craig wasn't really, you know, ground and pounding him. Craig wasn't really, in my opinion, really close to submitting him or come close to controlling him. He he really had to fight in those grappling exchanges. So I feel that Shogun did enough to win it. And um, like I said, um, it makes me a little concerned for Craig because Shogun, as good as he's been as a counterpuncher, He's not as durable as he used to be. He's not the athlete he used to be. And it's kind of stunning when you see these young guys who have such gaps in their in their identity as a fighter and gaps in their ability to execute where a guy who's really on his last legs is st- still able to give them a life-and-death battle. You know, it's, it's very concerning as far as the division goes because the best guys in the division are guys who are going to be out of it in the next year or two. And the, the young guys coming out have, re- have really yet to unseat any of the long-time Highly ranked fighters in there. OSP still around. Shogun still around. John Jones is still around. All these young guys coming up, they keep getting knocked off or keep getting getting held to stalemates by these old guys, and that concerns me as far as the divisions as far as looking to the future of the division. Nobody's come out and and taken the title. They're just it's like they're just hanging on long enough for these guys to retire, and that 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 doesn't build excitement. That doesn't round out a division. So. What I really want to talk about um, in the Shogun fight is when is enough enough with Shogun? When are we going to see him 
walk away from the game. He's been doing this for a couple of decades now. He's taken massive amounts of damage. It's been 10, it was 10 years ago that him and Dan Henderson had that fight that would have killed most people and ended their careers. That's 10 years ago. And what has he been doing since then? um, Let me pull up his record really quickly because I'm sitting here thinking about it. And it's amazing to me that this guy is still out there doing what he's doing. Let me see. Mauricio Shogun, who he is 37 years old, turning 38 uh, on, he turns 38 on Monday. So he's coming up on a birthday. This man has 37 professional fights, all right? Since in the UFC alone, in the UFC alone, he joined the UFC in uh, 2007, so 12 years ago. He's lost one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine fights. Um, all but two, three of those losses have been by stoppage. But he's still out here doing the damn thing. I mean, he's he's one, he's four, one and one in his last five. But I mean, yes, that goes back to 2015. When is enough enough? Should should we be having a conversation about telling fighters that are in Shogun's position that enough is enough and it's time for you to walk away from from the sport, or do we just let this guy keep doing what he's doing? Well, I mean, it's kind of like the Chris Weidman thing I said before. It's their career. If they want to continue to fight, to diminishing returns, to absorbing more punishment, that's their right. I, I'm not here to tell people what to do. They're professionals. They train. They're adults. They have, ch- they have families. They have children. They have wives. They're perfectly capable of making adult decisions and dealing with adult consequences. The only thing I don't want to hear is years later when you're saying nobody told me the truth, the UFC kept running me out. Don't blame the UFC. Don't blame your management team. Blame yourself because you're the person who's making decisions at the end of the day. You're the person who has a family to depend on. So you have to want to do this. And if you want to do it, I don't know that it's my place to make you stop. That's the UFC's job because they're your employer, but they're in the line of making money, building names, or building up exciting fights. So that's not really in their best interest. So it falls to you and your team. And if your team has not got a good enough sense to it, you, as a, especially in Shogun's position, as a guy who's made a lot of money, as a guy who should be a national hero in his own area because he's a cult hero here, you have to make those decisions. Now, the Chris Weidman thing, it's easier to say Chris should retire because Chris is getting knocked out left and right, and he's been knocked out recently. He hasn't put two wins together in how many years? I don't think he's put two years together, wins together, since after he beat uh, Anderson and then he beat um, Leota Machida or maybe he beat Vitor and Leota, whatever. It's been years since he's put two or three wins together. He's talking about Shogun? Shogun and, no, Chris Weidman. That's why you oh, can why, say, make yeah. the argument that he retires. But Shogun, like I said, he's in the past two years – He's four one and one, he, and, and even in the fights he's and even in the fight he lost. While while it wasn't while it wasn't the best performance of his career, it, you don't. He doesn't look like he doesn't belong in the cage. He doesn't look like he can't compete. He doesn't look like he has such a a, a gap in skill or a gap in reflexes or a gap in durability that he can't hang with the guys who are considered top fifteen to top maybe four guys in his division. So it's really hard to tell somebody who's still who's not getting blown out, who's being competitive with these younger, dynamic, explosive guys that he needs to retire. 
against a guy like Weidman, yeah, you could say that. When Gray Maynard was getting knocked out left and right, you could say that because it was clear their division and the sport had passed them by or lapped them. Shogun, and, and, and it's partly because of the division he's in, same thing it is with heavyweight, the division is got so many old guys who aren't nearly as dynamic as they used to be, so they're not as punishing, they don't fight at a pace that can exploit Shogun tolls. And then he's, on the other side, you've got these explosive high-activity young guys, but they don't have any sort of sense of seasoning, discipline, or experience necessary to navigate navigate the holes in their game or navigate the ebbs and flow of a fight. Basically, he's winning these fights off of veteran, veteran experience, smart fighting, and picking his spots to be offensive. He's just outsmarting these guys. He's out-strategizing them. He's not out-athleting them. He's not out-toughing them. He's just outsmarting them and fighting a smarter, more disciplined, more deliberate fight than they are. And he's exposing these young guys who don't have the experience necessary to navigate those spots. And against the older guys, they're on his level athletically, so even if it gets into an all-out brawl, he can hold his own. So in the division he's in, he has no reason to retire unless he just wants to because he can be competitive in this division for the next, what, at least two to three years? Mm -hmm. The question is, does he want to put himself through the punishment and exhaustion of training? Now, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to retirement, as long as you're willing to pay the price, in training, I don't have a problem with you fighting because that means you're taking all the necessary steps to protect yourself. When you don't want to dedicate yourself to the training, whether it's losing weight, um, learning new skills, or focusing or refining the skills you have so that you can defend yourself competently, when you're afraid to do that or you can't do that, that's when we need to start talking about retiring because you're no longer functionally able to, to defend yourself. And in that case, that's when it starts getting bad. So do you run this fight back? Do you think that they're going to run this fight back in some way, shape, or form? I mean, I guess they could. They could. I mean, it's all t- I, I think they probably will. I mean, for Craig, beating Shogun, who has, still has cachet, beating Shogun would be very valuable to him. Secondly, what other big fight is there out for Craig? I mean, seriously, what, what other options does he have? Shogun doesn't need this fight, but Craig, a win over Shogun, still carries some weight, especially given Shogun's recent form. So... If I'm Craig, I take this fight. I, I, I lobby for this fight because now it has a storyline behind it, has some controversy behind it, which means people might get a higher rating, it might get a higher spot on the card. But, um, you know, from, the, from that purpose, yeah. For Sogun, it's like do whatever you want. He's a, all, he's a Hall of Famer. He's an all-time great. He can take whatever spots he wants to take. He can make whatever decision he wants to take. He doesn't need this fight either way. In fact, losing this fight and the way he lost it didn't, or excuse me, getting a draw didn't hurt him at all. In fact, this fight, to a lot of people, made him look even better because he worked through some rough spots. And as I said, he 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 got he got in a fight that if you would have told ninety percent of MMA fans this is the fight we'd have got, you, you would have said that he was got a definite loss. And most people are still thinking the Shogun pulled this fight out. So if anything, it just helps add to his legend as now a faded fighter who's not only just beating young tough guys, he's beating them in the areas in the fight or the areas they want the fight to take place in. Which is even more impressive because you got a lot of young guys who can't do that right now. True, true. Uh, let's talk about the person that I wanted to talk to focus on the most here. That's Charles Oliveira. He picked up another win this time over Jared Gordon on Saturday, knocking his opponent out. This is his sixth straight victory. All six have come via stoppage, and he's continuing to actually grow and change up those those stoppages. But as you and I has talk, have talked about. In the past, and as I wrote about um, this week in a piece about Dobronx, 
I, there's still almost no way you can see him as a title contender right now or even someone in that conversation. And the reason being is because he consistently loses to the upper echelon of whatever weight class he's in. If you look at his record, he has eight professional losses, okay? Those eight losses have come to... Uh, those eight losses, everyone in those eight... The eight times he's lost, except for Jim Miller, everyone on the list has contended or fought for or held a UFC or WEC title. Um, Donald Cerrone fought for the title in WEC. Cub Swanson fought for the title in WEC. Both of those guys knocked Oliveira out in the first round. Frankie Edgar, former champion. Max Holloway, current champion. Anthony Pettis, current champ or former champion, excuse me, uh, Ricardo Lamas, he fought for the um, featherweight title. And excuse me, Paul Felder, he's the only other guy who has not fought for a, a, a title other than um, Jim Miller. And Oliveira was winning that fight until he messed around and got himself finished in the uh, second round. So this guy's in a very interesting position because he's he holds the record for... Let me see. He holds the record for most submissions in UFC history with 13. Okay, he has the second most finishes in UFC history with 15. Think about that. That's a, that's a trivia question for the ages right there because no one will no one would guess Dobronx has that record or has that position. He could and he couldn't necessarily finish his career with that that um, actual record. You never really know. What is the overall value of Charles Oliveira when we look back at his career? What do you think that will be? Would you think he'll be a fringe contender? You think he's considered a gatekeeper, or does he somehow find a way to get to that title? And in boxing terms, he'd be what you call a TV fighter, an action fighter, a guy who who, who can give almost anybody a good fight, a guy who, if everything goes right, could probably be dangerous to anybody, but a guy who's clear has clear limitations as far as his ability to compete with the elite. Because Charles, he's a dynamic guy. He's very explosive. Um, I don't think he's the most durable guy, but he's an aggressive guy. He's a finisher. He's a guy who looks for, who's not just a finisher by accident. He's a guy who looks for finishes and he's a guy who makes for exciting fights. But the thing I keep telling people is I don't think he's particularly durable and he's never been. And when you see him against the most elite guys, it's not just him losing. It's him. It's it's him getting stopped and getting stopped pretty decisively. There's not any question like, oh, the ref stopped this too early. That submission wasn't locked in. No, when he gets finished, he gets finished. And he gets finished decisively. And that shows it. And that's throughout his career. That's early in his career. That's through the middle of his career. That's to the point we are now. Every time he stepped up, he has been soundly defeated by the superior guy. The only question, the elite guy, the only question is how much of a fight does he put up before he gets finished by an elite guy? So I don't really think you can ever consider him a viable challenger for a title because I don't think he'll ever get through the elite people in any division. I still don't see, what is he fighting at 55 now? I don't see him getting past Dustin Poirier. He's already lost to Paul Felder. He can't be, I don't think he'd be Paul Felder. Maybe he can be Donald Cerrone right now, but Donald Cerrone isn't really an elite guy anymore. He could be, um, could he be Justin Gaethje? Mm, I don't think so. You I know, mean, I was actually I don't... talking about this and I wrote about this this week. I looked at the rankings, man. I can't see, looking at the top 10, Right now, so Charles Oliveira is sitting at 13. You, the only two names I could see, I would put him against. Maybe you do the Paul Felder rematch. 
maybe, but that wasn't even a controversial loss there. So yeah. Dan Hooker, Kevin Lee, I don't know, maybe Al Iaquinta. I could maybe see him outworking Al Iaquinta, but I could I could I could see that just because he's so dangerous. If you look at his fights when he's winning, you don't see him winning these these long drawn out wars. A lot of these wins are, you know, early submissions, early first round, early second round. They're not where he's shown consistent action from round one to round three. And while somebody will say, well, that's just because he's much better than the guys, that's fine. But why isn't he able to duplicate that? If he's so good, why isn't he able to duplicate that? When he's not able to dominate or catch someone early, he's essentially really ineffective. He ends up being a punching bag that fights back. When he was fighting Pettis, he was landing, getting his licks in, but Pettis was beating the hell out of him. You know, when he's fought these elite guys, he might get his shots in, but he's taking worse than he's taking worse than he's getting off. And he's so you, ne- you, he's never been a guy. Go ahead. You brought up a good point about his late wins, his latest wins. Uh, his if you had to go back to 2015, where he stopped Nick Lentz with a guillotine choke in the third round of that fight. Um, the only victory he has by decision is over Jeremy Stevens. If if you look back at that fight. Maybe you could say that's his most valuable win because Jeremy Stevens is now ranked number nine in the featherweight division. But um, all well, of Jeremy Stevens, other- Jeremy Stevens is the same version of of him though. He's another yeah. guy who fights in spots. Neither one yeah. of these guys can give you three rounds of hard action. They can't. I mean, Jeremy Stevens can't put together a disciplined, structured fight for three rounds. Neither can DeBronx. The only difference is Jeremy Stevens can take a lot of punishment, and Charles Oliveira cannot. And that's the thing that's going to separate him. I know we, it's like we watch traditional sports. And no matter how athletically talented you are in any sport, even the sports that aren't considered non-contact, tennis, maybe basketball is not considered that punishing, soccer. A lot of people in America think you have to be soft to be in it. If you're not able to stay from being injured, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. You'll never get past a certain level of acclaim and accomplishment. It's the same thing in fights. As dynamic as it can be, every time somebody with real punching power, real physicality, or a guy who he, 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 he doesn't laugh at athleticism or skill, he ends up losing, and he ends up... It's like basically when a fight's even, because he's, ta- he's got elite-level talent. He's just not an elite-level fighter. Every time he faces another elite-level talent, he loses. That's pretty much the story of his career. And all the guys you, you rattled off that he lost to, for the most part, all elite guys. The only guy who isn't is Jim Miller. Jim Miller's never been elite. But Holloway, Felder's not elite either, but Felder's got the potential to be such. But when it's, when it's been even, he's fought a guy with IQ, experience, skill, and athleticism, he's always lost. Exciting loss, one-sided loss, he always loses. So I don't think you can ever build him into a legitimate contender until you actually have him beat someone who is close to elite or just, or just an elite fighter. And he seems unable to do that. As you said right now, all the elite guys you can think of, I don't think he can beat any of them. Can't beat Felder. Can't beat Poirier. Justin Gaethje wouldn't fight him. I don't think he beats Justin Gaethje either. I mean, he's not going to be Khabib. Yeah, clearly, I don't, I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he beats, um, I don't think he beats anyone in the top five. I don't, to yeah, honest. I don't think he beats Edson Barboza. Edson Barboza might kill him. I, I figure his best option right now. now go ahead. That Edson fight might be a little bit interesting. Edson's at number ten. The only fight I would, I would like to see him in. If looking at the top five, the top five right now are Ferguson, Poirier, McGregor, Gaethje, and Cerrone. Um, maybe give him the Donald Cerrone rematch. The only fight out of this group I would like to see him in is 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 um, Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker sitting at seven. Yeah, 
I would say Dan Hooker is a good fight, but Dan Hooker wants a big name. He he's tired of taking fighting guys his level. He he wants to take the next step. Um, but that would be a good matchup for him. The only other matchup I think would be good for him, and I and I know I'm going to get grief for this. I say maybe instead of Conor, I've always said this about Conor McGregor. Instead of just coming back for the big fights, what you need to do is do it the right way. Come in, get some fights with dangerous guys, but guys who are clearly not elite level. Get sharp, get in shape, get consistently active, and then take out the elite guys. That way you're in the best shape, mental and physically. Your skills are as sharp as possible. You fought a couple different styles. You got your confidence up, and then you're going in with a guy, and you've been active, he's been active, you're sharp, he's sharp, instead of you haven't fought for a year, and now you're going in with a guy who fought, six, who fought three to four months ago. You can't possibly be sharp. And talent only takes you so far when you're facing guys who are also elite talent. So I would like to see Conor McGregor come back against a dangerous but lesser fighter, someone, and Donald Cerrone, as experienced as he is, he has not looked particularly sturdy. Beating Donald Cerrone doesn't prove anything for Conor McGregor. Beating someone like Charles Oliveira May, who's a big, long, athletic guy, who's a finisher on the ground, beating him still has some cachet. That still proves something about Conor McGregor, and it sets up another bigger fight. Then you take a next step to a Paul Felder. Then you take a step to a Justin Gaethje. Then you go for the championship. So I would like to see someone like, I would like to see a fight with Conor McGregor because that fits that fits the framework. You can sell the fight because Connor's popular. You can sell it because Charles Oliveira has won a lot more than he's lost. He's fought everybody, and he's a finisher, and he's a, in MMA terms, a world class grappler. That makes for a fight for some questions. That makes a fight that's interesting. You actually mentioned something there too, because you said in MMA terms, he's a world class grappler. I actually been thinking I want to see this guy do some competitive grappling. You see a lot of people going back and forth between the two. You know, you got Rafael Lovato out there doing the thing, going back and forth. You got Luke Rockhold with a big matchup going back and forth. Um, you have like Michelle Nicolini, Mackenzie Dern talking about she wants to go back and forth between grappling and MMA. Um, Oliveira and Damian Maya are probably the two people that I want to see go back and forth between competitive grappling. Um, and I think he he could do some he, he could do some work there. I, I'm not a grappling expert. I just find his game to be not really connected. He's like seems like a guy who's like a big spot, you know, transition scramble finish yeah, kind of guy. He, he doesn't seem like risk. a guy. Yeah, and, and against against MMA guys who, who MMA guys who could, it's a little bit different. The gap is wide enough where he can do that. I don't know against full time professional grapplers who really work the full structure because that's what they focus on. Who aren't going to make those mistakes or give him those openings. I don't know that he just doesn't put himself in a bad spot and get finished himself. And if yeah, he's gonna, if he's gonna grapple in a if he's gonna grapple in a defensive manner, well, I don't want to see that. I only want to see if he's gonna try and translate what he does in MMA into grappling. If he's gonna, you know, grapple not to get submitted, well, who wants to see that? I'm not paying for that. I, I can agree with that because his his MMA grappling is is very um, very risk heavy. And against someone that is a competitive grappler like a Gary Tunin or a um, or a JT Torres or or Renato Canto or someone like that, uh, Canudo, he would have to be much more um, reserved in, in his game. So I agree with you there. Yeah, and if he's reserved, that takes away the interest of having him in there. What's the complaint they have when the MMA guys come in? They, they know just enough not to get submitted, so their whole position – that's, that's not appealing to anybody. That does not help sell the brand of grappling. In, in my opinion, I could be wrong. But No, you're, you're definitely making some good points there. You know, you laying in someone's guard, holding them down, does not make me want to see you grapple again. Yeah, you're a big name, but are you coming? I'd rather you see get – I respect more the big name comes in there and gets finished than just hold on to so I can say, well, I didn't get tapped by a world-class guy, but you didn't do nothing either. If I run from Floyd Mayweather for 12 rounds, I can go 12 rounds with him too. 
I want to see if you can actually fight him. True, true. What else stood for out, out to you on this card? We saw Tracy Cortez got her win, uh, which was you know which we talked about last week in the now uh, now missing episode one forty two. She got her win on Saturday. Uh, did she do have enough of a performance to um, elevate herself at all, uh, or talk about Tracy or anything else that stood out to you on Saturday? Well, first off, uh, I think I think she was already elevated. I think coming in, like I said before, she has she has a storyline, her own storyline. She's attractive. She has a brother who died, which adds a storyline. And then she has the Henry Cejudo thing. He's like one of the hottest things in MMA, who's always put herself in the media. Now she's connected to him. So I think coming in, she's already on a higher tier than most of the girls in Bantamweight. In fact, I, I soon expect to see established Bantamweights calling out a girl who's got one she's fight at, in the UFC. She's, she's, at, she's at flyweight. 125. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, I can't even think right now. So, yeah, excuse me. I fully expect them to start calling her out because she has appeal, she has a storyline, and clearly UFC is supporting her, which means there's going to be some veteran fighter who says they're all about the title but is going to call her out so they can derail the hype train. We know that we know the routine. Same thing happened to Paige Van Zandt. Same thing happened to Stage Northcutt when he came in. You have a bunch of established fighters trying to pick on the new guy or new girl because... They have some burn. They're getting some attention, and they're going to see if they can take it by fighting them. I mean, hell, um, you got Macy Barber still doing that. Yeah, I mean, like, oh, I want to fight for the title, so let me pick on Paige Van Zandt. Why don't you go pick on her sister? Yeah, I mean, you laid it out. You beat her, and then you call her out in the cage. I just took your sister out. Get your ass in the cage. You're next. Valentina ain't running from that. Valentina is very quiet, but she ain't scared. She ain't going to tolerate that disrespect right in her face. But she won't do that. She's complaining that Paige Van Zandt is running away. A girl who she says is more of a model than a fighter, but you're chasing to fight her. What does that make you? That makes you a bully. I don't want to see a bully fight. That's not appealing to me. So I fully expect her to start getting some some call-outs. The luckily thing for her is in the division, this division isn't particularly, it's not settled yet. It's not stable. There's a lot of fighters who are failed bantamweights or uh, failed... Uh, you know who are moved, who are moving, who fails right away. There, they're not really established their their prior divisions. So there's people who don't have the full array of skills and the full array of athleticism, where she can't be competitive. I mean, you could put her in with a, uh, you could put her in with Rachel Ostevich, who's an experienced fighter but not necessarily dangerous. That'd be a fight that would get some play. Uh, Lauren, uh, Lauren Murphy still. I mean, even though she's very experienced and she's a big, strong, physical fighter. She is limited in what she does and how she approaches fights. She's not a finisher as a grappler. She's not a great striker offensively or defensively. You know, even Roxanne Matafari, as experienced as she is, she's at a deficit as far as athleticism, physical power, and physicality. You know, there's lesser lesser skilled fighters who've been able to get work done against her because of her physical limitations. So there's, there's avenues for her to put one, two, three, four, fight wins together. It's just a matter of whether her and her team move at the appropriate space and, and t- take the fight to the appropriate time to let her get her legs and get her experience level. But she has all the makings of a potential star. The question is, do they force them, do, do they the UFC force her into bad fights? I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's really the, the question there. I just think that... Um... There needs to be like, there. There needs to be a, a concerted step in what they do with Tracy in the future. Well, let me ask you a question. 
you, I mean, as a person who's, you know, you, you work corners, you're, you're into the grappling and wrestling. Where, where do you feel her, her grappling, her wrestling puts her at an end division as far as girls who are like, you know, ranked or stuff. So we're talking about women's flyweight here and let's look at the group. So we have Paige Van Zandt. Um, I mean, I think Tracy could beat her. Um, well, mm, that's, that, that's a tough one there. I think she could beat Antonia Shevchenko. Um, that might be it. Because uh, looking at the rest of the group, there there's enough of maybe uh, Andrea Lee. Uh, I, w- I would maybe look at, at that fight there too as well. Uh, I think that she what has... What about Molly she, McCann? Uh, Molly McCann's not ranked. Um, oh, so, yeah. And I think that Please. what's important about Tracy is that she doesn't, she needs to work on her striking as well, too. Um, I was looking yeah, back clear. at her first she's fight. About, she's getting about toughness and physicality. Yeah, and she's getting off, and she's getting by on the fact that she can kind of not bully people, but her striking is enough to get her in close to begin working Did her. You ever her be the impression she, she's willing to get hit, and that's where yeah. a lot of the girls seem a little jumpy, and so that's the difference. Like, they're trying to, to land and get away, and they're not good enough to do that, and she's like, I know I'm not good enough. So I'm just gonna swing. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna swing. And those, most of these girls don't hit hard enough to to do damage, you know. So it's like she can make mistakes and not really pay for them. It's interesting that you brought that up because I looked back at her fight um, on the Contender series, and that's the exact way to um, describe it. She was taking shots to the face left and right, and um, she even commented on that. Uh, in the post-fight um, interview, like she's, she's taking shot after shot after shot after shot, and people were just like, "Okay, uh, yeah." She was just like, "Well, I'm I'm Mexican, so I can do that." I'm like, uh, you know, that might not be the best way to look at it." So um, to be to be fair though, yeah. it, it, if she if, if she plays that angle, that will make her very popular because I mean, if you pay, pay attention to boxing, that machismo, that toughness, that goes very far. Guys who are huge, like like uh, Oscar and even Canelo to a certain degree, they'd be so much huger if they were just willing to go to war a little bit more, and and play into that historical context of fighters who are willing to take two to give one, who are willing to walk through fire. I mean, that's that's going to help her sell. That's going to get her more fans from the boxing world into mixed martial arts because they know she's not a a slick fighter, a fancy fighter. She's coming to fight, and she's mm-hmm. willing to put herself at risk to fight. True, true. So I think it'll be interesting to see where she's headed. I think they have to be really cautious with the with the matchmaking with for her because um, they can't make the same mistake that they made against, say, a with the Mackenzie Durham, for example, because she was in all three of her UFC fights. She's kind of been exposed, but even though this one is the one that she just lost, um, because we knew she was going to struggle with her takedowns in that area, but it was more it was super clear in her um, last fight. So I think that they need you know, to be careful with uh, Tracy and who they book her with in the future. They're kind of mirrors of each other. I think Tracy is into MMA more than McKenzie is, but that could backfire too because she wants to fight the best. And you have to... And I wouldn't even give her a ranked fighter yet. i give her like a Molly McCann, somebody lowly on the edge of rankings who are just barely ranked or people who aren't ranked at all. So you can see what she can do. And, and let, her, let her find her identity as a fighter. Let her work these things into her overall approach so that when she faces the better people who can make her pay, she at least has a counter. She has an answer instead of just, I'm just going to keep running at him harder and harder. 
that's what happens when you're building someone. You have them face people who are dangerous, who can test them in spots, but not punish them in spots. So you don't lose, you don't have them get the world class beaten out of them in, in that three round fight. You want to have them pick up new skills, learn something about themselves, hopefully keep winning. But if they lose, not get punished and not take a step back physically because they've taken such a beating. You want to slowly progress them. So her being not scared, her wanting to go to war, it's going to be up to her management to say, hey, that's not a good fight for us right now. We're going to take the long road so that when you face the elite, you're ready. Because she, she has a chance to be a star. She has a chance to move up quickly. But you don't want to take any missteps. You don't want to take two steps forward right now when you could take five steps forward if you just wait three to six months. What else do you think stood out to you? Um, what else stood uh, out to you? The one thing I would say is the, the Ariana Lipsky fight. She wasn't dynamic in it. I still I still have concerns. I, I, heard, I, I read an article in MMA Fighting, and basically she was saying she went to go spar with JoJo Calderwood, and JoJo Calderwood's coach was spotting all these technical and strategical mistakes she was making. And a lot of times when I called, when the first time she fought, I called her out on it and her and her camp, people said, you're overreacting. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just some idiot. And now in her own words, she's saying someone else's coaching staff is catching technical mistakes she repeatedly makes and strategic mistakes she makes. Why isn't your coaching staff catching on to that? It, it boggles my mind that you have to go to another camp to realize you're sure you're, you're negligent in certain aspects of fighting or you're lacking in certain areas of fighting. Like your own camp should be able to point these things out to you. Whether you listen to them or not, it's not under their control, but you shouldn't be hearing a bunch of new ideas about how you should attack, how you should defend and where you should go from other people. I understand they've, they've got a different set of eyes, but on a certain level, striking, grappling, wrestling is striking, grappling, wrestling. If you know it well enough, you can call out things. And the fact that she says that just makes me more concerned because at the UFC level, she's not a standout athlete. She's not that kind of standout athlete. And I, I don't see her with enough of the craft or the maturity. For as many fights as she has, she fights in a very immature manner. No poise, no controlled aggression, no sort of plan B if plan A doesn't work, no plan C to get back to plan A. She has nothing. She either dominates you physically and outclasses you and outworks you, or she just loses a slow-paced fight with no ability to, slow, to turn it around or to regain control. And that's a bad sign. This three fights in, I still don't know what kind of fighter she is, except she she seems to be a very shallow in her skill set, and she seems to be very attribute dependent, even though she doesn't have world class attributes. So, I'm glad she got a win. She got a stay of execution, and there's enough fighters they can get her wins. But it's not just winning; it's how you win, and it's who you win against, which is going to determine your legacy in mixed martial arts. And right now, I don't see her as being someone who gets past maybe the top. Maybe, maybe top if she's lucky, top ten. She's she looks like a fringe contender to me, unless she makes some decided changes in how she prepares and who's training her. Because I didn't really see any improvement. I saw her against a fighter who she's a better athlete than, who she had more more, more quality experience than. I didn't see her do anything technically or strategically that was so genius or or so different than what she did before, which is once again very concerning to me. You're either getting better or you're getting worse, and she's just gotten worse and worse the past three four fights she's been in true true um let's talk about a couple other topics that were not um ufc south Pava. first is bellator london on saturday friday 
I don't know what damn day the show is on. Bellator London. Um, the only thing I want to talk about on this card is one Michael Venom Page because he is fighting in the main event. And um, it's, this fight is being booked as some type of redemption tour for him uh, because, you know, he's coming off of that loss against Douglas Lima where Douglas Lima basically hit him with the, with the hammer of Thor and put him out of, of the welterweight uh, tournament. So what is Bellator's end goal with MVP? Are they trying to build him up as some iteration of Anderson Silva or some second-level striker? Because they keep putting him, up, putting him against guys he should win. And clearly, you know, when you look at the big names at welterweight, Douglas Lima, Koreshkov, Lorenz Larkin, others, you, you get concerned that he may lose and not win those big fights. What are they trying to do with him? And what do you think his overall value is to this organization? First of all, I have no idea what they're trying to do. One of the first articles I wrote for MMA Ratings was comparing how basically two guys from similar backgrounds, Wonderboy Thompson and Michael Venom Page, came into mixed martial arts in the same general time frame. And during that time frame, Wonderboy went from new to debut to pros- from prospect to world title challenger and still legitimately top-ranked five to seven fighter. And at this point, we still don't know anything about Michael Venom Page in the same period of time. He's had less fights. He's had less fights against qualified competition. And, he, and he's had less career-defining wins. We, I, we don't know anything more about Michael Venom Page than we knew at the beginning. He's a guy, he's a, he's a traditional martial arts striker, good accuracy, doesn't telegraph a lot, good movement, um, sneaky power, who's tougher than expected, and a dynamic striker, and a creative dynamic striker. That's all we knew about him coming in. That's all we know about him now. We don't know if he's really any sort of competent grappling threat. We don't know if he's any sort of competent wrestling threat. All we know is he's got an awkward style of striking, and he's hard to adjust to, he's hard to get away from, and he's hard to hit. That's all, that's all, that's all I know about him. I don't know what value he has to the, to, the, the, to the vision, except for the fact that he's exciting and he's interesting and he's charismatic and he, he provides a lot of viral moments. But as far as a fighter, I don't know that he has any real value because he hasn't beaten anybody of note. So you can't really hang your hat that he's a world-class striker because we haven't seen him face anybody in extended striking battles and mixed martial arts and show that against... against um, Lima, he, he got finished, and they, they didn't get it into prolonged striking exchanges. And against Paul Daly, for some reason, Paul Daly decided he was going to try and wrestle him of all things. So um, I don't know what they're trying to do with him. It just seems like they're just trying to keep him busy, and they're trying to use him to, to provide excitement. The one thing I can say he does is, regardless of who he's fighting, when he's fighting a guy who's not on his level, he doesn't play around with him. He doesn't go life and death with him. He doesn't eke out a decision. He gets rid of him. And that there is a skill to doing that. And I commend him for doing that. And he does so in an entertaining manner. But as far as legitimate fighter, I don't know any more about him than I did the first day he steps into the cage. I think there's some interesting fights I'd like to see him in. Um, MVP versus Lorenz Larkin. That's the fight I want to see next. After this one, I would like to see Lorenz Larkin versus MVP. Uh, Two guys with creative, traditional style martial arts backgrounds who are very dynamic, very fast, hit hard. And are awkward strikers. That's the fight I think they need to make. If he beats someone like a like a, a Larkin, maybe we can talk about him facing Lima again. But he has to be someone who's an actual threat, someone who can actually fight the fight he fights and beat him in it before he even talks about fighting the champion. I mean, I'd even settle for Rory McDonald. 
but I think the better matchup would be him versus Lorenz Larkin. That's the only way you can legitimize this guy at this point. There's just there too many second-tier fights he's taken, and I need to see him fight against a guy with first-tier talent. Yeah, and um, I, I'm a fan of, of Lorenz Larkin. I miss that guy who was out there getting big wins that people were kind of doubting him when he moved into Bellator, and he struggled um, when he first got there. Let me ask you a question, a random question about Michael Venom Page. Do you think he would be, be, beat Pitbull? I don't think so. Um, I don't. Skill-wise, I don't think so. I mean, Pitbull's still a much better grappler. He's still very durable. Like I said, Venom Page, his style is difficult to get a hold of. Let's not forget, Lima wasn't wiping the floor with him. He took him down. He wasn't just dominating position and, and, and submitting him. And on the feet, he was having problems with uh, – with Venom Page's distance management, his timing, and the type of strikes he was throwing. But the fact of the matter is, the biggest hole Venom Page has is the same hole Machida has. A lot of his effectiveness is based on distance management. So if you close the distance on him, his defense and his offense falls off a cliff. Plus, if you get him into extended exchanges, his style's not built for that. So there's areas you can exploit him in. And even against a smaller guy, with when you have as big a hole in your game as far as the wrestling and the grappling goes, and you have as big a hole in your game as you have, as MVP does in extended exchanges, you have to favor the person who's more accomplished and um, more accomplished as a fighter and has a more refined skill set. And I still think the other pit bull would have more refined skill set and be more accomplished. I mean, I think Benson Henderson might give him some trouble too as well. I mean, just based on the skill sets and the level of experience. Like I said, Michael Venom Page is an elite talent, but we have no idea if he's an elite fighter. We know he can make a fight difficult for an elite fighter, but we don't know that he can really beat an elite fighter. And until you beat one, you can't even be considered an elite fighter. And for some reason, he has somehow managed to never fight an elite fighter in his four, five, six years in Bellator. And, and Bellator doesn't have that many elite fighters, but how he's managed to avoid all of them is stunning to me. Okay. All right, good thoughts there, sir. Um, I want to talk about a couple of other topics before we close out. Um, we're going to skip the Gordon Ryan conversation. We can we can leave that for another day. We got um, a couple of weeks before that match even takes place. The question from listeners that came in today was a reference to middleweight fighters moving up. Why are so many middleweights struggling to move up to light heavyweight? We've seen other fighters move up and find success. You got Daniel Cormier, Dustin Poirier, Rafael Dos Anjos, who actually just got announced for an interesting fight against Michael Chiesa, uh, which is coming up. But what is it about middleweights that are moving up to the 205 and struggling so badly? Well, the thing about it is you've had a couple who had success, and that's why a lot of these other guys started doing it. Um, you had uh, Anthony Smith, he moved up, and then you had Santos move up. And they saw, and I think a lot of guys saw the success those guys had and said, you know what, I'm going to move up too, and I'll be able to have similar success. The difference is this. The reason Weidman had issues is because he's already had the world-class beaten out of him. That fight against Rockhold changed him. That fight, that when they, they sent him out for that third round or second round and he took another extended beating, that essentially ended world-class Chris Weidman. And in the regards to Luke Rockhold, He's a world-class athlete. He's probably one of the best athletes in the sport. But the fact of the matter is he's not a particularly durable guy either, and he started getting in fights with guys who were punishing him. So when you have two guys moving up in weight class, what you're saying is my skills and my overall athleticism is enough to make up for the difference in size, durability, strength, and power. 
my skills, my athleticism is enough to make up the difference. Luke Rockhold doesn't have, didn't have the necessary striking skills to navigate fighting guys who are bigger, who can take his shots better, and who are longer. He's used to having a certain, a certain distance via safety zone. Against these big, long, light heavyweights, that safety zone doesn't exist. And he's not a good defensive striker. So when he starts getting touched, he knows he can't take it. He tries to grapple. And as a person who's grappled myself, not to the level you have, and as a person who's got your level of experience would know, grappling against an educated grappler who's probably got 30 pounds on you, you know, even if it's 10 to 15, but a guy who's got comparable skills and is a lot stronger than you, stronger than you, it's a very tough proposition, especially when you're throwing in punches and kicks with it. That's what got Luke Rockle against Chris Weidman. Weidman, he just doesn't have anything left. He can't take any punishment now. He's probably a smarter fighter. He's probably a more skilled fighter than he's ever been, but his body can't take and can't recover from punishment. And a lot of his advantages at middleweight were based off his length, his physical size, and his physicality that came from the size and length advantages. At light heavyweight, those advantages don't exist. Everybody's his height. Everybody's got his length. Everybody's got his strength. He can't bully anybody there. And a lot of his skills were based on his ability to push a pace and physically bully somebody. Once he can't physically bully someone, he isn't able to get the takedowns. He's not able to control where the fight goes. And once he can't push a pace, because when you push a pace, you expose yourself defensively. So if you can't take a shot, you can't really push a pace anymore. You can't. Throwing a lot of volume, spamming a lot of takedowns means you're going to get hit a lot. Chris Weidman can't even take any sort of punishment from any decent, decent striker anymore. So he can't even push the pace. He can't use the tools that brought him to success at the middleweight division. In the case of Anthony Smith, he was just a tough, gritty guy. So he got to a division where he had the full extent of his durability because he wasn't cutting weight. So he could focus on his skills and his durability and his physicality and his pace all raised by not making the weight class by not cutting weight. Same thing with Santos. His durability came up, his explosiveness was even, was even higher, and his athleticism was enough to make up for the difference in regards to the size and physical strength the guys had over him. But these other guys moving up, they're not good enough athletes and they're not good enough fighters. They're thinking that they are, but the fact of the matter is, instead of improving their skills and doing better at middleweight, they're trying to take a shortcut by moving to a weaker division, in air quotes, and they're getting exposed for the same reason they were losing in middleweight. Luke Rockhold has poor striking defense, doesn't take punishment well, doesn't recover from punishment well. That's why he got beat by Jan. Chris Weidman depends on his size, his physicality, and his pace. But he, he can't take a shot anymore. So he can't really use his size, physicality, or pace. And now they're facing bigger and stronger guys who can expose those holes much more succinctly and much more, much more obviously than smaller guys who are at physical disadvantages against them. It's really just simple. You move up in weight class when you think your skills are good enough. You move down in weight class when you feel your physical strength, the moving down will provide you with a advantage as far as your strength, durability, and your power. You think that'll make up for any skill or speed you don't have at a lower class. Lower guys moving up think their skill and their athleticism will make up for any lack of durability, physicality, or physical strength and power that they don't have. That's really the reason people move up and down in weight class, to, to exploit advantages, whether they're real or perceived advantages. That's all Luke Rockhold was trying to do. That's all Chris Weidman was trying to do. But it's just, their problem was a skill problem. They weren't good enough. Do you think there's anybody that could make the move uh, and find success 
from um, two, right from now 185 to 205 yeah um i think eventually adesanya will be able to i think he's got to fill out some more to be quite honest i think he i think he needs to fill out in at middleweight he's strong enough where the, the strength isn't as big a factor but i think a light heavyweight the guys like as i said are a little bit more tougher they're longer so his his length and his his length and his reach isn't as big big a factor and even though they're not as good wrestlers in middle middleweight the fact is they're bigger, stronger wrestlers. So even though the lack of skill is there, they can they can force takedowns. They can force them up against the cage. I'm not saying he wouldn't beat a certain degree of them, but I think that he'd have a smaller margin for error. But I think eventually he has a chance. Um, Robert Whitaker, of course. I think Yo Romero probably has the biggest and easiest transition because he's shown to be durable against the hardest hitters at middleweight by far. I haven't really seen him you know, really stopped, and his athleticism is really second. And his athleticism is better than almost all the middleweights, so you know it's way better than all the light heavyweights. The only difference is can he take punishment? And I, I believe that given his athleticism and his durability, that he could take the necessary amount of punishment to contend in that division. You have to be able to, when you're moving up in weight class. You have to be able to. You have to be physically durable. No matter how quick you are, no matter how many shots you avoid. You have to be durable enough to take the five or six shots that you get hit with. You might only get hit with five or six instead of the 15 to 20 you get hit at middleweight. But those 10 to 15 to 25 pounds make a huge difference when you're getting hit to the body, kicked to the legs, punched to the face. You have to have the necessary durability to navigate that. I know that Yoel Romero does, at least until his chin gets cracked. Um, Adesanya, I don't think his chin's really good, but I think his where he can navigate it. And Robert Whitaker, I think, has the athleticism and the pace. Once again, I'm not too sure about his defense, though. So I'd say the best bet, a couple years, Adesanya and Yo Romero probably could move up right now and be a contender within two to three fights. What about Paulo Costa? Um, I guess I'm kind of, I do, I've, I've heard stuff about him. I, I, I tend to believe people are clean until proven otherwise. But, yeah, I didn't even think about him. He, given his physicality, yeah. But once again, he's a guy who leans real heavy on that. So when I watch him fight, he seems to be a very obvious fighter. I'm not saying there's not skills, but he seems very obvious in what he's doing and what he's trying to do. And I don't know how that works when you grab a guy and you're used to just pushing him anywhere you want. And you grab these other guys and you can't push them the way you want to. You know. And once again, he's not a great defensive fighter. And he's going to be facing guys who aren't great fighters, but guys who have who – have, who hit harder, take a better shot, and have the reach and size to get to him in spots that other guys aren't able to get to him in, usually. You know, the advantage that Israel Adesanya has is he's got that limp. You move to light heavyweight, a lot of guys have that limp. So a lot of the, the things you can, he can do, they can't do it on that same technical level, but strategically, they can exploit holes in guys' games very well. And I, I feel that there's some holes that can be exploited, but based on physicality, if you want to go physicality, power, and durability... Yeah, Paulo Acosta could move up as well. True, true. Um, so we're going to go ahead and close the show out there. And let's um, let everybody know what we're working on this week. Sir, you go first. Um, I was trying to get some sources for one of my articles, but I think I'm just going to just go straight and, and, and put it out there. And whatever happens, everybody gets upset, they get upset. Because um, everybody, I, since I work with people, people always think I'm talking about them when I'm saying something negative. Never when I'm saying anything positive, only when I'm saying something negative. And I try to kind of talk to people to clear things up sometimes, but I can't get a hold of people. I just get tired of holding stuff back. So 
I'll just make whatever article I make and deal whatever fallout after, after after the fact. True, and I'm covering a lot of professional wrestling this weekend. There's a lot going on, so I'm gonna um, take some time to review and take care of that stuff. Um, and that's about it. Um, let everybody know where they can find us, Sean. Uh, you can always find us on YouTube. You can find us on FM Anchor, um, iTunes, and I think FM Player. That's another place you see us at. Uh, always like and share. And if you have any questions or things you want us to talk about, just get at me or Raphael on Twitter or hit MMA Ratings Net on Twitter. And we'll be glad to answer any questions you have and address any topic that you want to address on the show. Very true, sir. With that in mind, let's go ahead and close out and let's have uh, a great weekend, man. Be safe this weekend. You too, sir. Take it easy. You too.